0: now, in our Bibles to Philippians chapter four, after several months of study, we finally come to this last chapter in this wonderful little letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church and as we begin this letter this or this fourth uh, verse or chapter, I should say, uh, we see that Paul had just a very special bond, a special affinity for this church. This was the first church that was started on the continent of Europe. And perhaps there was no more important city to have a church than Philippi. It was on a very important east-west route through the Roman Empire called the Ignatian Way. And that's the route that Rome used to move its armies through northern Greece. And it was very important because there were a lot of travelers that came through this city. And whenever people were converted to the gospel of Christ, when they heard the preaching and were saved, then they took that gospel to their own homes throughout the Roman Empire, and thus the gospel of Christ was spread all over the empire. And of course, that was all by God's design, because 300 years before Christ came, God united the world through a common language and a common culture. And the purpose of that was to facilitate the rapid spread of the gospel. Philippi was also very important because of two conversions that we find in the book of Acts that... uh, really tell us a lot about the gospel of Christ. One of those was Lydia. And in the conversion of Lydia, that's where we learn how that God actually brings the gospel to us, how he makes it effectual in our hearts, because the Bible says there that the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she received the gospel. She attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. And that's the way that the Lord works with the gospel. He must open our hearts for us to understand and to believe. Then also there was the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And that one was important because there we learned the simplicity of the gospel. The Philippian jailer asked that very simple question, What must I do to be saved? And there's only one place in the Bible where the question is asked just like that. What must I do to be saved? And the answer that Paul and Silas gave was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So, Philippi is a very important place in the New Testament. And by the time that Paul writes this letter, the few converts that started out there in the very beginning had grown into a vibrant, healthy church. It was a church that loved Paul, and he loved them. And again, we do find that in the opening verses of chapter 4, the love that he has for this church. And then we also learned in the very beginning of the letter that this was a church that really didn't need any strong rebuke. Not the same types of correction that Paul had to deal with in some of the other churches. This wasn't the Corinthian church that was just embroiled and barraged with immorality and uh, spiritual weakness. And it wasn't like the Galatian churches. Ones that had been infiltrated with perversions of the gospel. So Paul didn't have to deal with the church at Philippi in that way. But this was a church that's like all churches. Even though the problems are not so apparent on the surface, there is a problem in this church. It's not without trouble. And the trouble begins to show up in chapter 4. And this is the reason that... Paul says in chapter 2 leading up to it that believers are to have the mind of Christ and they talk to our, uh, avoid strife by esteeming one another higher than themselves. So there was a trouble, problem with conflict in the church and we're going to get to that in the next two or three messages as we get into the deeper problems that Paul addresses. But all the way through the book we find doctrine, we find application of doctrine. And this evening, as we look into this fourth chapter, the conclusion of the book includes encouragement for Christians to stand for something. Now, in consideration of the doctrines that he's already expressed, he says you need to hold your ground and you need to stand. Well, we're going to stand right now, so let's stand and read God's Word. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse number 1. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and I beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to gather together and consider your word. Uh, Bless us as we discuss what's in the word tonight and help us, Lord, to learn something that will help us in our Christian lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned a moment ago Paul's deep love for this church, and we find that here in the first verse of chapter 4. Paul calls them, My brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. Because of his deep love for this church, Paul wanted the very best for them. He knew that they were facing trials. He's spoken to them about persecutions. He knows there are those constant influences of Satan. He knows there is a weakness of the flesh. But he doesn't want any of those things to be an excuse for the Philippian people. And so here he tells them that they must stand. I want to take a few minutes tonight to just sort of give you an overview of some problems that churches face and where we need to stand in certain areas. I have a couple of messages on this. We'll continue with it uh, next Wednesday night, but we'll get into it a little bit tonight. Some of the things that we need to stand for as a church and in our individual lives as Christians. Now, I think that we could start with the very obvious. Number one is that we must stand for the Lord. Now, this is where Paul starts, because everything that has anything to do with us as a Christian is all about how we view the Lord. He says, Dearly beloved, stand fast in the Lord. We stand fast in the Lord, and we stand fast for the Lord. We stand fast in the Lord because He is the source of our strength. We're facing a conflict that's mightier than any of us can imagine. In Philippians chapter 6 Paul speaks of spiritual warfare, and there he talks about the wilds of the devil. And when he uses that word, he's talking about the craftiness, the ability to deceive, the myriads of ways and methods of attack that Satan uses against us. There's an onslaught that comes from, to us from every conceivable angle, and it comes from these powerful forces of evil. And we're not equipped naturally to deal with that. And so in Ephesians, Paul gives a list of different pieces of spiritual armor that we have to put on to arm ourselves against the attacks of Satan. He speaks of the belt of truth in that passage in chapter 6. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. There are shoes of the gospel of peace. He says we need the shield of faith, and he tells us to fight with the sword of the Spirit. And he says you put all those things on and then take your stand. And until we're prepared with all of those different pieces of the Christian armor, we are simply not ready to take our stand. So this is standing in the Lord. And the purpose of this is tied back to these previous chapters where Paul talks about these different doctrines. And he begins this fourth chapter with therefore. And as we've said before, whenever you see therefore, you always have to check and see what it's there for. And these things are therefore because we're citizens of heaven. We spent a lot of time talking about that in the last few weeks. We're citizens of heaven. We're a colony of heaven on earth. Christ is coming back. He's going to change our vile bodies to be made like the body of Christ. Christ is coming to take us to our heavenly home. So this is how we stand in the Lord. As David said, he's our shield and our buckler. He's the power that's behind our defense. And so God alone, the Lord alone, is the one who gives us the ability to fight spiritual warfare. And I might add that all of this ties right back into chapter 1 and that great statement that Paul makes about perseverance. He tells us that God has begun a good work in us and God will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that is the time that he comes to take us home. It also underscores that teaching that we had in chapter 2, verse number 13, where he says, "...it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure." And so that is God working in us, the one in whom we stand, equipping us so that we can persevere in the faith. So standing in the Lord, that's one thing that Paul says that we need to do. But I want to change the focus of that just a little bit and say also that we must stand for the Lord. We have to stand for the Lord that we serve. Now, today's church faces an incredible amount of misinformation and attacks on the Lord whom we serve. Paul faced the same things in his time, but he never was able to see what we go through today when there are so many people that call themselves Christians. There are so many churches out there that use the name, but the Christ that they serve is not really the Christ of the Bible. Now, there are two very important issues that we need to consider when we think about standing for the Lord. The first one is that we must stand for His deity. Stand for his deity. That's a doctrine that we have to stand on. Two of the fastest growing cults in the world today are the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, the Mormons especially have succeeded in some degree in bringing themselves into the mainstream of Christianity. And most people today don't even realize that there's actually nothing Christian at all about the Mormons. They deny the deity of Christ... They devalue it so that, really, Christ is no more God than any good Mormon will one day become. They don't believe in the eternal Son of God. They don't believe that He's equal with God. They don't believe that He's one with the Father. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And the equality of the Godhead, the Trinity, that is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. And if you deny those, there is no sense in which you can be called a Christian. Now, the Mormons have succeeded in causing the world to think that they're pretty much orthodox, just like the apostles in the New Testament. But Mormons are not Christians. They deny the deity of Christ among many, many other doctrines. They're simply not Christians. Then you have the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, they have many, many converts. They haven't succeeded in pushing themselves in the mainstream as much as the Mormons have. But the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses both Deny the deity of Christ, and you can't call that religion Christian. Now, there are many people who understand that. They understand that there's a problem with the Mormons, there's a problem with the cults. These cults have a different view of the deity of Christ, and so they're not Christian, But what most people have difficulty really understanding and know very much about is that the long-standing, long-standing Christian denominations who have claimed to be orthodox also may be teaching another way of salvation which makes them not Christian. Now, what I have to say next probably won't shock you, but there are people who will very strongly disagree with what I say. There are Trinitarians. People who believe in the Trinity, who believe in the deity of Christ, and yet they're not Christian because they actually worship a false Christ. If you have a doctrine of salvation that says that man's works play any part in salvation, that teaching is not Christian. Now, how do I know that? Well, we've covered it many times, but in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he states that if anyone preaches a different gospel than what he and the apostles preach, they are to be cursed. Now, what Paul preached was the grace of God alone. He, he preached faith in Christ alone as our salvation, and he taught that man's works play no part in it. And so anyone who teaches differently than that, Paul says that person is to be cursed. Now, do you think Paul was in the habit of cursing Christians? When he used the word accursed, he means, by that word, consigned to hell. The word accursed actually means destined for destruction. Christians don't go to hell. Christians aren't destined for destruction. And so, therefore, according to the Apostle Paul, anyone who preaches a work salvation is not a Christian. When anybody adds sacraments to, uh, to the gospel or adds self-help to the gospel, or it says that you have to have this positive thinking that goes along with it, and that's part of the gospel, that person is not a Christian. You see, you can preach the deity of Christ all day long, but unless the deity of Christ is like it's taught in the Bible, unless the Christ that you believe in lines up with what Scripture says about him, then you haven't really believed in the true God. You believed in a different God. So you can't define God by your terms. The only way that God is defined is by the terms that he's given himself which is exactly what we find in the Word of God. And so if your view of Christ does not match the doctrines found in the Word of God, then your God is not the God of the Bible. Some people say, well that's strong words and maybe they are, but I ask how could we preach anything less when the difference between that gospel and our gospel is the difference between heaven and hell. That's the difference. And that's why it's so important. Only Christ is the true God of the Bible. If your Christ falls short of the description in the the Word of God, then you've fallen short of the one, only, true, living God. Now, that brings up another important issue about standing for the Lord, and that is to stand for His authority. The God of the Bible has absolute authority. And if he doesn't have absolute authority, then he's really not the Lord. A moment ago, I I talked about standing in the Lord. If God is not the absolute authority, then we really have nothing to stand in. The word authority itself connotes power, and it connotes the ability to enforce the authority. And so if authority is not respected for its authority, then there's nothing in which we can stand. I was reading a a comment recently by A.W. Tozer, He said, I have been assessing the church for a long time. My conclusion is basically that the church is politely bored with God. You expect me to entertain you. You expect me to do something that will attract your attention and titillate your emotions because, frankly, if all I do is talk about God, you'll be bored. Isn't that a correct assessment? I mean, what have we seen all across America in our churches today? We see... The fastest growing churches are those that have incorporated entertainment into their services. There's no preaching of doctrine because doctrine is simply too stuffy and too boring for people. And what we are, quite frankly, is a charged up society. And if something doesn't appeal to our flesh, then we simply don't want it. We have to have something that gets us moving. There has to be something right in front of us that excites the sensibilities. And if we can't get excited about what we see, then we just don't want it. And so churches and pastors know that. And so in order to fill the pews, they bring in the rock bands, they bring in the dances, the skits, and the circuses, and all that, because they know they can't fill the church without entertainment. And so in the process, they abandon the Word of God to bring people in. I also read this recently. There's one preacher who said, One thing I've learned is that when you get in the pulpit, you have to communicate without using the Bible, because it turns people off. So I've spent a long time developing the ability to communicate to people without using the Bible. I started out in my ministry saying, this verse says this, and this verse says this. But I realized it wouldn't get me anywhere. Now I say it my own way, and people accept it. And that is the abandonment of authority. I mean, who is the preacher who could tell us that God does not know how to communicate with people? I mean, who would dare say, I've got to close the Bible, I've got to begin saying what I want to say, I need to use my words instead of God's words. You know why that we incorporated a scripture reading during the morning service? The reason that I did that, we have a time that we read the Bible without any commentary because I believe that the scriptures can speak to us because they have God's authority. God knows how to communicate his word to us, and we can... Uh, speak the Word of God, read the Word of God in its pure form, and we can understand it. Now, of course, you need explanation, and of course we do the preaching, but I would never be one who says that there is no way that you can understand God's Word without me. I don't have time to go into a whole explanation of that, but that's one of the things that you call sacerdotal salvation. You have to have an intermediary between you and God to explain to you exactly what God wants you to know. Well, I would never say that, because if you're a born-again child of God, you have the Spirit of God in you, which means that the Spirit of God can teach you. Now, I may help in that, because simply maybe because I spend more time in the Word of God than you do, but I'm never going to be so brazen as to say that I have more power than the Holy Spirit does to communicate the Word. Now, I'm using the word, the word, word, because the Word is what God spoke, and He spoke it with authority. And so that means that we have to hold up the Bible. Just like we've been studying in, in Matthew chapter 5 on Sunday mornings, Jesus exalted the Scriptures because they had authority. And so if we're going to stand for the Lord, we have to stand for God's Word that is spoken in authority. Now, in Berean Baptist Church, the Word of God is never going to take a backseat to entertainment. If the Word of God doesn't move you, then however that you do get moved is not moving in the same direction God is going anyway. And so if the Word bores you, if I can't simply stand up here and expound the Scripture and have you leave here saying, the Word of God spoke to me, the Word of God interests me, I want more of the Word of God, keep preaching the Word of God, give me the Word of God alone, if you don't say that, then you're never going to take God's authority seriously. Now some people put great stock in the preacher's ability to speak. And so today you have the popular evangelists and they're the ones that really can command attention just by the way that they speak. And they can get people excited about things. And I found out that usually those people are more enamored by the speaker than they are actually by the words that are spoken. And I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. There were some people who were complaining about Paul's abilities to preach. And so he wrote, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. There's nobody that was applauding Paul for oratorical skills. But you know what else he said? He said, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what sound preaching does. Now, maybe it's not delivered with the greatest oratorical skills, but when God's Word is spoken, and the listener pays attention to the Word that is spoken rather than to the person who is speaking, he will come out blessed because God's Word will never return to him void. God's Word always accomplishes the purpose where he sent it. So God's Word is what has authority, and there's power that goes along with that authority. Then I'm also reminded of Jonathan Edwards. And I've told you about him, how Jonathan Edwards used to read his sermons, and he read them in a straight monotone, not even looking up from the text at all, just read it straight through. But the weight of his words was simply amazing, and there were thousands of people that were saved under his ministry. You know Why? Because he was speaking the word of God. People were listening to the word of God. Now, friends, if we come become bored with God and we become bored with the word, we will not respect its authority. We're not standing for the Lord unless we're standing for his word. God's word isn't a suggestion about things that we should do. God's word is the absolute authority for our lives. And if you're not standing for his word... You're not standing for the Lord. Now, I want to move on to a second consideration about what we must stand for. I believe we can also see in Paul's words here that we are to stand with the leader. Now, you notice what it says in verse 3. Paul says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women that labored with me. Now, later on, we're going to get into the problems that are going along with this text. But here Paul reminds them that there were people in the church that labored with him. When he began this church, there were some good, solid church members who stood right beside him. They worked with Paul, and they helped him to build that church. These are the people that he speaks of here in verse number 1 when he says, they're my joy and my crown. You know, a lot of times to preachers, church members are not the joy and crown. They're the thorn in your side. And that's because many church members don't make the ministry a whole lot of fun. There are people that are always down on you. They're, they're complaining about things. They're gossipers. They're fault finders. And the whole time you're preaching, they're sitting back there muttering under their, under their breath uh, things that they disagree with you about. Well, if a church is going to be successful, there has to be a membership that stands with the leader. Just like Moses, when the children of Israel went up against the Amalekites, there was Aaron and there was Hur And they held up the arms of Moses. And the Bible says that when they held Moses' arms up, that Israel prevailed. And when Moses' arms were let down, then Amalek prevailed. And it's the same thing in the church of God. When the leader has no support, then the devil prevails. But when you stand with the pastor and when you support him, when you lock arms with him, then there's nothing this church can't do if i 'm standing for the Lord and you 're standing with me, then that means that you are standing with the Lord also and if i 'm standing for the Lord and you 're not standing for me, then you 're not standing for the Lord also. So what do you do to help your leader? What can you do for the preacher let 's talk about a few things. What can you do for me? Well, first of all, pray for the preacher. Every Wednesday night, we have the prayer page and We read that together, and the top of every prayer page always says, Remember in prayer this week, Pastor Smith, Pam, and their family. I hardly ever mention that, but I hope that you don't miss it. There's nothing that helps me more than to have people to pray for me, and nothing encourages me more more to have people say, I'm praying for you. Some of our older members don't hesitate to tell me that, on Sunday mornings, I usually come in and I sit down for a few moments while the choir is practicing and Zelda's sitting right back there on Sunday mornings. I sit down and one of the first things, almost always she says to me, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you all week long. Uh, Jack and Francis will often tell me, we're praying for you. Hazel tells me that she's been praying for me. You know, we have some folks in the church that they they can't run after kids. They can't teach in Sunday school. They can't do the Pioneer Club. But that doesn't mean that their work for the church is diminished in any way, because those folks are prayer warriors. And we need people to pray. You know, I think that God's hand of protection is on me a lot of times and keeps me from making a lot of foolish mistakes simply because there are people that are praying for me. And even if you don't tell me that you're praying for me, pray for me anyway. The job that I have is the most fearful, the most demanding, the, I'd say sometimes I would say the scariest job that a person can have because when you propose that you're teaching the truth of God's word, it's an awesome job. I mean, it's an awesome responsibility. There's a lot of weight that goes along with this. Now, I know that I need prayer because I live in this skin every day. And I know how weak and vulnerable that I am when I'm left on my own. I'm painfully aware, believe me folks, of my inability sometimes to speak the word of God plainly to you. And I try as hard as I can. I study as much as I can. I try to get it right. And I know that with God's help and if you're help praying for me, that we're going to get it right. You see, we often say things like, God is our helper. God, God's our helper. And we are just depending upon God. But maybe sometimes we forget that God uses means. You just don't say, well, God is my helper, and so I'm just going to sit down here and let God help me. It's not the way it works, because God uses means. And one of the means that God uses is prayer. The way that God's grace reaches me and you help me is through prayer. That's how you can help the preacher. I also like something that Martin Lloyd-Jones said along these lines. He was speaking about encouraging the preacher. Here's what he wrote. Listen carefully. Do you know that you take part in the preaching of the gospel by being present, it is an encouragement to the preacher. I frankly confess that I never quite understand those who feel that it is sufficient for them in desperate times like this to attend the house of God but infrequently. When people who may not have been to church for years come into the house of God, they are impressed by the fact that large numbers of people still believe in listening to the gospel. So my Christian friend, if you feel you have no gift, let me assure you here and now that you are one of those people whose names is written in the book of life, and your presence in a service of worship is of great help. Now think about that for a minute. Just being here, that is standing with the pastor. You know what I like? I like people who are consistent in their church attendance. And when you're not here, what does that say? When you're not here, when the Word of God is being preached, when it comes Sunday morning or other times, and you're not here, what you're saying is that what the pastor has to say is really not so important as what I have to do. There are other things that are more important than what the pastor has to say in preaching the Word of God. So I'm going to do other things. Folks, there is nothing more important for you, your family, or anyone else in the preaching of the Word of God. And if you think that there's something else that you can do, you can't square it with the Apostle Paul. You won't find it in God's Word. Now, what else can you do? Well, secondly, you can protect the pastor. This job that I have makes me the target of many slings and arrows. You know, the pastor is the most visible person in the church, and so he's the one that gets picked on. Now, I think about this in a physical way sometimes, and I I appreciate physical protection. I was talking to uh, Tom DeWitt and Dave Sharon, I believe, some time ago, and we were talking about how that nowadays, you know, people will just walk into the church with a gun and walk up the aisle and aim it at the pulpit and just start firing away. And I suppose the preacher's the biggest target, so he's going to get it first. And, uh, you know, people will do that. You know, in our church, we have a line of defense against that, and we're supposed to have. We we have uh, some men that are out in the vestibule, and they're thinking about things like that. If you're listening to me out there, think about things like that. And uh, hopefully there's a few of those that would take a bullet for the pastor. But uh, they they try to protect they. Protect things like that. I mean, we, we, do, we do things like that for a purpose. And I appreciate that kind of protection. I also appreciate this. I remember when uh, Brother Tom was the head deacon, that, or head usher, I should say, that uh, he watched me very closely. And a few years ago, when I was going through uh, so many of the heart problems that I had and, and uh, didn't have that resolved, that he was watching me. And, and when he saw that there was something that looked like a problem, he was there to check on me. He came in my office on numerous occasions and say, Are you all right? Is everything okay? And kept his eye on me. Last year, I had a herniated disc, and after I got done preaching in the uh, Sunday evening service, I went home and tried to take my shoes off, and when I did, I went straight down to the floor and couldn't get out of the closet, couldn't even get up. So I had my phone there, and so I called Dave Sharon, and I knew that he would be there in 15 minutes. He was there right by my side asking me what he could do for me. I appreciate those kinds of things. But I also appreciate those who have my back in other ways. I'm not a perfect person, and I probably give a lot of people reason to complain. But I appreciate church members who will not stand for somebody to speak ill of me. They will not get into a conversation with somebody when they're talking badly about the pastor. And do you know that ought to hold true for... Any person who is in leadership in the church, really for anybody, but especially for those that are in leadership in the church, you ought not to stand for anybody to be in your presence and talk bad about the leadership of your church. Don't stand for it. And the best thing that you can do when somebody opens their mouth and they have something to say about me or some other a leader in this church, you say, I don't want to hear that. You shouldn't be talking like that. Don't speak that way in my presence. Now, what happens if you don't do that? When you lend the ear, when you listen to the complaint, when you let it go on and you don't say anything, all you do is you just validate what they've said. I mean, you just said, it's okay, let's talk about that. It, it, it's okay, that's fair game. It's not fair game. You can't stand with the pastor and allow people to talk badly about him. Now, goodness knows there are plenty of people out in the world that want to ruin a preacher's reputation. We don't need people in the church to help them out with it. Now, I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. He said, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, what he means there is if there is an accusation, you don't just believe it because somebody said it. Not just because somebody said it, you don't believe it. If they're going to make an accusation against an elder, then they had better have the right proof. They better have abundant proof before they ever make an accusation. And when you hear something bad, when somebody complains about my character or says something about me, your first reaction ought to be, it can't be true. We know our pastor, it can't be true. Rather than, well, look what that dirty dog's done now. And that's the way a lot of people react. Protect the pastor. Stand with him. Don't stand against him. And if your pastor preaches the truth, don't let harm come to him. The next guy that comes along may not be any spiritual benefit to you at all. So think about that. Now, thirdly, let me mention this, and then we'll, we'll go on to some other areas next week. But thirdly, minister to the minister. And I'll be brief as I talk about this because I mentioned it not long ago. But the pastor has those spiritual needs that you must pray for, but he also has material needs. I'm blessed that Brian Baptist Church takes good care of me financially, and I do believe that that is a correct biblical response towards a pastor. That's written in God's Word. Now, it's hard for me sometimes to talk about the subject because it's talking about me, but I'm given that responsibility to teach you what is in God's Word, what's best for you. Now, I grew up in a pastor's home And I saw what happened when my dad felt bad about preaching on a subject like this. He hardly ever mentioned it. I would have to say that I don't recall one sermon. There probably were some, but I can't recall sermons where he preached about this issue. And so I think that for many years that he had to also work a secular job along with preaching because there were so many people who had the opinion that the way that you keep the preacher humble is to keep him poor what they didn't realize with that is they were only hurting themselves. You're only hurting yourself. And then there are some who think, well, the pastor, you know, he's got a no-work position anyway. I mean, all that he does, he sits all day and writes sermons. It's like sermons fall out of the sky or something. Just write sermons, that's all he does. Well, those of you, some of you men who have filled the pulpit and you want to do it right... You know it's time-consuming. And do it three times a week and see how well you do and find out whether it's work or not. Now, I'm not complaining about that because it's my job, it's what I love to do, and I don't take it just as a job. It's what I want to do. But the minister needs consideration. You have to minister to him so he can minister to you. And if you have the attitude, well, it's not of very much value after all, then you'll pay the preacher what you think he's worth. Not very much value. And it goes along with every type of ministry that's done in the church. If you don't see any value in it, you won't support it. It's as simple as that. So how you respect your pastor, what value you see him is in the way that you take care of him. How do you minister to him? Well, I need to close this part of the message. Paul says we've got to stand for something. Uh, it seems reasonable to me that where you start, of course, is that you stand for the Lord. You must stand for the Lord. And next comes, you must stand with the leader, the person who God has put here for you to lead you spiritually. Now, the Apostle Paul is the one who started the Philippian church, and he was the one that God put there to give them spiritual instruction. So many different areas that Paul was giving them spiritual instruction, and those people were standing with their leader. This was a good church at Philippi. They had some problems. We'll talk about how Paul dealt with them. But the way that Paul deals with them is, and it's fascinating to me, and we'll get into it in a few weeks, but it's a so, so unique approach that Paul has with the church at Philippi that he didn't use with some of the others to address a problem. And that comes out of the kind of character that that church was. They stood with him. They loved him. And so he approached his correction and his discipline of them in a much different way because there was so much love that was shown. So you stand for the Lord first, then you stand with me. And when you're standing with me, folks, I believe that we are doing the work of the Lord in the greatest church that there is, Berean Baptist Church. Stand for the Lord and stand with me, and we'll both stand for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your people. We thank you, Lord, for those who are interested in your word. They come out to hear the word preached. They love your word, they enjoy hearing what you have to say. And Lord, we just thank you for this church, what a great one it is. Help us to stand together and stand for you. Give us the grace that we need to fight this warfare that we're engaged in. And Lord, may we not give up, may we not be against one another, but work together, fellow laborers in the world, to, to accomplish your work here in this world. Bless us in this time that we sing, Lord, draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.